Hey foodies, this is Matthew Gray from 50 Tastes of Gray. I'm your host and today I'm beyond excited to introduce the culinary wizard Chef Joe Gatto. Chef Gatto brought an irresistible blend of passion and expertise to this podcast. He turned our conversation into a flavor-packed journey that you won't want to miss. His ability to turn ordinary ingredients into extraordinary dishes is pure magic, and his talent for making every bite and experience is something you have to taste to believe. But it's not just about the food. Joe's warm and engaging personality turned our podcast episode into a delightful chat that will leave you smiling. His genuine love for food is contagious, and you'll find yourself hanging on to every word as he paints a vivid picture of taste and texture. Get into the kitchen and start cooking. Join us. Enjoy the playful banter between Chef Joe Gatto and myself. If you want to stay in touch with me, go to my website, lovelife.com. So, Joe, what have you eaten today? <laughs> well, uh, today we made I made pulled beef tacos. So I made an achiote rub and did um, a chuck roast and slow roasted that and then finished it with a little salsa verde and made homemade tortillas with the jus and did some pulled beef tacos. And I've been writing all day. Oh, that sounds great. That sounds really good. Nice and energizing. Yeah, super tasty. Tacos uh, are my jam. What do you do with the uh, the chuck roast when you have cold tacos? You, you, you cook it and then you let it cool overnight and then you slice it up. Is that how you do it? Well, actually, when you um, put it in the slow cooker, or you can do it on top or the oven, however you want. And I do it in the slow cooker on low for right around, it ends up being about five, six hours. And then what you do is I actually put it with like a little beef broth and achiote, and I make a little salsa verde, and I mix that in, and that's what it braises in. So after that, when it's done, you just pull it right in there. And then let it sit in the jus and you hold it in the jus and you actually put it in the fridge in the jus so it stays super juicy. I mean, it's gold. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That sounds fantastic. I love speaking to other chefs. So this is uh, amazing stuff for me. Sometimes I get people responding to this first question, um, like I had a protein shake or <laughs> something yeah. very dull and boring, you know? It's, typically, I'm, I'm making something pretty pretty spectacular because i've got a you know i have three kids and my wife so you know aside from instagram aside from recipe testing aside from cooking for clients or prepping for classes you know i'm cooking for them so there's always always something going on and i make everything from scratch so if i'm doing even like a pizza class that we teach in boston typically for like 40 people you know i'm grinding flour i'm doing the whole thing so there's always something constantly going that's pretty cool here. My wife would be the protein shake and like fruit salad. She loves that kind of stuff. You let her eat that stuff. Oh, she she goes she does she does what she wants. I make her her dinners like roasted salmon, and she's vegetarian or pescatarian. So I, I make a lot of like uh, stuffed mushroom dishes for her and things like that. So I'm constantly cooking vegetarian. My kids all eat meat, so I do a lot of dishes for them too. Mm -hmm. A moment ago, you were mentioning about making pizza crust. Do you make it and let it sit in the fridge to allow it to ferment and maybe sour up a little bit? Yeah, I'm a huge believer in the cold fermentation. So when I do pizza dough, you know, you want pizza dough to have a high hydration rate because you want it to have a lot of water. So when it hits that high temperature, it creates steam inside. And that's how you get those nice big bubbles. Right. 
And, and if you don't have a, if that's why you need to use a high protein dough that has a lot of gluten. So when those bubbles are created, they don't collapse. So if you're using all purpose flour, that's what happens. It doesn't have enough strength and it collapses and you get kind of a thick dough. But for flavor, you know, you want to make that dough and let it sit on the counter 24. And then once it's done with that, bag it and tag it. And I'm, I'm a big believer of another 48 in the fridge. So it's mm-hmm. 70 total. Yeah, I, I think that that's absolutely the right way to make it. I think that fresh pizza dough is usually pretty bad when it comes down to it uh, versus a fermented dough that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, in, just in, in flavor, I totally agree with you, and in the way it performs, because uh-huh. the gluten's time to relax. You get a much better hydration rate after 72 hours. So when you're throwing it on, I use a baking steel personally, because I think baking stones are a horrible thing to cook on. So the baking steel, when you have that proper hydration and you slide it on, you're getting that beautiful leoparding on the bottom and you're getting that proper oven spring so that steam really gets created. So you're getting that chew and you're getting that nice crunchy textured bottom that you're looking for. So there's a lot of uh, advantages for letting doing it that long. What do you think the reason is that people go to pizza as their number one love food? Uh, if you were to ask them, we give them a multiple choice answer type of quiz. Most people go to pizza, wouldn't they? Yeah, a lot of people would. It's such a comfort food. You know, it brings back so many great memories. It's such an easy thing. And it's so, especially here on the East Coast, it's just, I mean, it's everywhere. You know, every corner has a pizza shop. You go to New York per square footage, right? It's It's got to be the most popular thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, I grew up with pizza and being a Boston boy, I, I love pizza. I love homemade pizza. We don't order pizza out that much, but, you know, it's just because I can make it 10 times better at home. But yeah, I think it's just one of those ultimate comfort foods. For me, you know, Mexican food like tacos are mine. That's my comfort food because a big transition in my chef life was having grown up on the East Coast. You know, all the influence here is England and Britain and everything from there. But when I, I lived in L.A. and Berkeley for a long time, and when I went over to L.A., it's all influenced by Mexico and Asia, and those flavors really sung to me. So it was such a wake-up call of the difference, because Mexican food, when I grew up in Massachusetts, we make, when we do like a hard taco, I call it the mall taco here. Like as a teenager, we'd go to the mall and there'd be a Mexican stand, right? With the Burlington Mall, this big mall that we had. And it basically, it was a a stale corn tortilla filled Mm -hmm. with beef, maybe some some brown lettuce, a little cheese that's not melted, and a packet of sauce. And that's what I grew up thinking a taco was until I got older and then really started to experience it. So when I went to LA, it really just kind of blew my mind, the flavor profiles over there. Oh yeah. You know, I grew up on the East coast and the same thing goes with tacos for me growing up in New York. You know, I think maybe it was Jack in the box where our first expression of what a taco is all about was from there. And uh, Chinese food was out of a box and it was like nothing like the real thing until you come over to the West coast, you start doing a little bit of traveling. You can kind of see, wow, here are some real native flavors and some interesting and unusual ingredients. Yeah, absolutely. That We have a place in Tulum in Mexico now. So we actually are going in a couple of weeks for my birthday. Oh, good. When we go down there, the food to me, it's just, it's my favorite in the world. It's so fresh. And the combination, even when they're, when they're doing tacos with like braised meats, 
those slow roasted, rich braised meats against those bright acidic salsas, just all on a tortilla, just to enjoy as you're walking. It just has something that's really special for me. Yeah, you know, uh, citrus and roasted spices and things like that really bring food up to another level. Agreed. As a chef, do you experience what I've been experiencing my entire life is what I call diner's remorse. And that's when I go out to restaurants, pay good money like everyone else, and then end up saying, I can make it better at home. Ah, occasionally I run into that, but not not too often. We don't go out that often, but when we do, it's usually a place that my wife and I go out for a date night that we pick out that's very special, that we know I know the chef's at or we've been invited to. And have we we just went out for Japanese food on Saturday and the experience was fantastic. We had a roasted eggplant dish with miso. It just blew my mind. Yeah, that's an amazing dish. Yeah, there's things like that that, you know, when we go out, it really is. And before that, we went out to like an authentic Thai street food place that and the food there, everything from beef tongue to razor clams was exceptional. And those flavors really sung and I mean, occasionally when we go out, someone I'm always picking the place. It's very rare that anyone picks a place now just because they for, <laughs> they fear that I'm going to freak out or something. But yeah, I have had that in the past. But I don't even, I wouldn't call it remorse with me. One of the things that I do have is we'll go somewhere. There was a place in New York we went, Oxamoco, which was this cool fusion restaurant down outside of, in Brooklyn. They did tuna tartare tostada we just couldn't believe how good it was and what i did was i recreate that when i get home so when i find something that i really love i tend to recreate that when i get home so i can start spinning it my way right sort of like a gourmet detective where you taste something and then you can recreate it at home exactly you take a couple minutes as you're eating the dish and you kind of dissect it you know with that chef brain and right you can always get pretty close plus you know with With Google and everything, you can really access recipes and start to kind of dig into the history of dishes that, you know, even 20 years ago you couldn't do. What do you think that is uh, really hot and popular right now? Let's just say in Boston, since that's where you are. What's popular in Boston? You know what I've been seeing a lot of was Mm -hmm. barbecue. Lots and lots of barbecue. Wow, what Uh, kind? Everybody's doing, it's always North Carolina and Texas, it seems. I've been seeing a lot of barbecue and people are really pushing that farm to table aspect, which I think has been being pushed for quite a while now. But I've seen it's more like the leads on menus. Everybody's farm fresh and they know they have traceability and they, they you know, they know the farmer and they they, they pick the corn themselves. I'm seeing a lot of that, which is a good thing. You know, that traceability and that responsibility to the whole system is is a great thing to see. Is there a part of uh, the way the world works right now with big food, big farming, big pharma, and everything else that's related to food and our health that kind of bothers you that you'd like to talk about as far as, you know, I'm giving you the platform to be able to talk about farm-raised food and things like that. Is there anything that's, that's in your craw that's stuck that you'd like to speak about? Yeah, I really like to stay on the positive tip with things where I want to get people back into the kitchen and and cooking and taking that time. You know, everyone knows that. I, I mean, I think it's pretty much out there what big pe- when big companies raise cattle. I think everyone knows what that's like. It's mm-hmm. not a good thing, right? Or raising chickens. We all. I think there's been enough documentaries and enough on that. What I want to really push with people is to 
get back to the kitchen and cook with your family. Because I think food has a special place. It's a very special place in my heart. I think food has a way of reaching people that's beyond anything else in this world because it can over overcome religion, politics, language, right? It steps over that with ease. When someone, no matter what it, where you are, hands you a dish that they made, there's something that they're saying to you. There's something that it means. There's something, there's a deeper part of them that they're handing to you. And a lot of it is not just their heart and their soul that they put into the dish, but it could be their heritage. There's just so much behind food. And when you get in the kitchen with your family and you take that time and you make a dish together and you're passing down a generational dish or creating one, either way, it's time that you will be really glad you spent. What was your life growing up uh, when you were sitting around the dinner table with your family? What was that experience like? I mean, the dinner table was like anyone else's dinner table. You know, my dad was, you know, kind of a disciplinarian. He'd put a timer on the table if you didn't eat fast enough. You know, his thing was just, he grew up in a different generation. But my remembrance of the kitchen was really cooking with my mom all the time, still do. And, you know, especially on Saturdays, we would cook all day. There'd be a little 13-inch black and white TV in the corner playing Julia Child or Jacques Pepin. And we would just cook all day and talk and build our friendship and our relationship. And it's the same I do with my kids now. So my remembrance of the kitchen, I really believe there's a reason they call it the heart of the house. I mean, for me, it definitely is. How were you able to offset your dad's kind of style? with being able to bring that uh, sharing and engaging of heart and soul with the way it sounds like your mom is. Uh, so how are you able to blend those two realities? Yeah, I mean, I was always a big believer in you are your own person. Your parents definitely have an influence on you. But, you know, my dad wasn't a big cook. He wasn't into the arts. And that's all I've ever done was arts. I was a filmmaker before I was a chef. I was never a nine to fiver. I've always been an entrepreneur. So, you know, if it's something that you don't agree with, for me, I've never been one of the kind of people that, you know, oh, my parents did this, my parents did this, because, you know, my dad, the way he grew up, he didn't know any better. And it's up to me to stop that kind of behavior so it doesn't get passed on to my kids so they don't have to deal with it. Dad, you're forgiven. Uh <laughs> yeah, he was never like into that kind of thing. He was his own dude. Who were uh, some of your favorite filmmakers while growing up? I'm a huge 70s fan because I think when the 70s film came around, you know, it really changed all of Hollywood because the studio system finally got left behind. So that was the time of De Palma, Coppola, you know, when Spielberg was coming up later in the 70s, Lucas, but not, you know, just Star Wars Lucas, THX 1138. God, I mean, it's it's really Dennis Hopper, you know, like all of those kinds of films when they came out and they challenged the studio system because the studio system didn't understand what the public wanted anymore. You know, they were making stuff like Paint Your Wagon where Clint Eastwood was singing. You know, this is not something they <laughs> You know, it's so funny. When you, when you take a look back at old television, old movies, they used to have scenes that would be maybe minutes long. And now you fast forward to today, modern day, if you have a scene that's more than like 10 seconds, uh, it's a long scene. 
And people's attention span is so much different now than it was back in the day. It is. It's a it's a whole different. I mean, it's still storytelling, you know, it's just storytelling in a different fashion. And I still think a lot of filmmakers do take their time, like a Christopher Nolan, you know, where he lets things play out in long form, which I enjoy. But I enjoy the other. You know, I grew up in the 80s when editing really started changing and Mm -hmm. became a different kind of form. And I still enjoy that. I mean, there's still a lot of long form out there, just not as much as back in the day. That's for sure. Back in the day, Led Zeppelin had 28 minute songs back then, too. Oh, yeah. God bless Led Zeppelin. Absolutely. (laughs) What is uh, one of your favorite food movies? Uh, Chef is definitely hands down my favorite food. Oh, yeah. Favreau. I, uh, I love that story. That's fairly recent, is it not? Yeah, I would say it's about five years old at this point. But I have a 13-year-old son that cooks with me. Uh-huh. So that really hit home with me. And Favreau's just one of my favorites. I, I love him as a director and a producer and a writer. Right. Um, did you ever see Big Night? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I love Big Night. That's a great Great, great actress. And, and it was a very emotional kind of story as well. Yeah, that's a that's a great one, you know. And uh, Chocolat, I thought was really cool. Um, we just watched the menu. Uh huh. Uh huh. Was so fun. I really enjoyed that. I thought it was a great take on all of the kind of filmmaking. It was real. I had a we had a really good time. My wife and I actually met. She came on as a producer on a film I was directing. So we have that. We share that film background. So we still love watching film together. There's a kind of an obscure movie called Tampopo. Did you oh, yeah. ever see that? Yeah. In my 20s, the only job I ever held was for it was about six years, and I ran a video store in Berkeley, California. So you can oh, just wow. add, like <laughs> everything. Berkeley. I, I watched some, some pretty strange films. So let's get people into the kitchen. How do we do that in an environment, a society, and culture that's out of control as far as uh, social values, uh, with prices being out of control and people wanting convenience because they believe that they don't have the time to sit in their kitchen with their family and spend 30 minutes making something delicious. They'd rather spend an hour going out and buying food and bringing it home. Yeah, it's definitely prioritize. You know, prioritize what's important. You can order a pizza out and it will come to your house and you'll maybe you'll eat it together, maybe you won't. I don't really know. Most likely you'll just grab slices and people will go to their electronics, right? But if you're sitting and taking the time and making the pizza together, you're not just creating a great meal, you're creating a memory, can't be broken. So people have to prioritize what's important. And a half hour in the kitchen doing an activity together to create something that you're gonna share at a table, I think that's pretty worthwhile. And I push that in all my classes. I push that with my TV show, my radio show, I have a show on NPR. Like I just really push that side of it because it is important. You know, it is important to take that time and spend it with your family. And if you're spending it making a meal, something that you're going to break bread and share. I mean, I, I just don't understand how there can be more important things to do. I mean, put your computer down. Look, I get it. I'm as busy as it comes. I'm developing multiple shows. I have a radio show. I have classes. I'm a private chef. I work with, you know, I work with the Celtics. I worked with the Red Sox. Like, I'm busy. So's my wife, like everybody. But what's important? Take the moment, take some time, and spend it with your kids. There's no way you'll ever look back and regret that. Will you maybe miss something, miss a meeting, do some, get behind on something a little bit that you might have to stay up late? Yeah, maybe. 
but take the time and spend it with your kids. You'll never, ever regret that. Yeah, I, I second that 100% because that's been my entire life as well. Getting it, getting people into the kitchen and taking care of them through their flavor uh, profiles and, and all of that. But like I said, you know, nowadays, modern world is a little bit different. Everyone is rushing and eating pretty bad food when you think about it. And so it's what kind of techniques or philosophies can you add to this conversation that would allow people to understand that maybe it's better to go roll up your sleeves, get into the kitchen, have a little bit of fun, find your Zen place and enjoy. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, some things are a little more expensive right now in the grocery store. Not everything. I mean, I'm there every day. So I see it live, like higher end cuts of beef. They're more expensive right now. Chicken's been bouncing back and forth. You know, everyone's freaking out about eggs. I mean, how often are you buying eggs that it's going to break the bank? You know, it's things get a little more expensive, but you know, and I know it's cyclical. You know, oil in the 70s when you had to get gas in 79, it was going to cost you an arm and a leg and no one could see the light of the day for it. But it all balances out. One of the things that you do is that I recommend to people all the time. Don't just try to shop for everything at once because people get really frustrated because three, four days later, maybe they didn't have time to make every meal. They overbought thinking they'll make every single meal. Start small, make two meals, shop for those two meals, make one that you know everyone like, and then make one that you haven't made that you think everyone will like. Don't keep making the same thing over. You don't have to go and make octopus, but if you're making a chicken dish, try chicken piccata. Oh, no one likes lemon? Try chicken marsala. And then do something when you're making pasta, right? Don't just buy it out of a box. It takes two, literally 30 seconds to make pasta from scratch. My kids do it. They're five, 10, and 13. Mm -hmm. They my class. It's not something that's hard. If you have a food processor, it's like a snap and then you roll it out. Super fun with the kids. Really delicious. Make one element. If you're making doing burger night, make the buns. If, if, the, if you're scared of bread, which you shouldn't be because it's just a couple ingredients and mostly the yeast does all the work for you. Bread for burger rolls, it's you're adding an egg and some butter and it's an hour and a half. You shape them into buns and you're popping them in the, in the oven at like 350 for 25 minutes. So you're doing burgers. Make the buns. I don't want to make the buns. It's too hard. Okay. You know, make some pickles. Just try to get into making elements that you usually don't make. Get out of your comfort. I don't have time to make pickles. Sure you do. You slice up, you know, usually using Persian cucumbers. You're making a little brine with vinegar, water, sugar. You can add whatever you want. Some black peppercorns, some whatever you want. And then you're heating it up, pouring it over, letting it sit out of the fridge for an hour, then putting it in the fridge overnight, homemade pickle. Do you happen to do any home fermenting, like of cabbage or anything else to where you I, can enjoy the health benefits and all that? I've taught quite a few classes on that where we do a lot of fermenting because fermentation is something that's super easy. And again, the counter is doing all the work. Once you get that in there, it's a piece of cake, right? All you need is a little cheesecloth. So those are things, those are things people can be doing. Cook a bit on a Sunday, right? Before your week starts, prep some stuff out, like make it easy on yourself, trim up the beef or make a beef stew, right? Things that you can just do at home that they're going to sit in the crock pot. Like I did the beef tacos, right? It was, I did what, 20 minutes of work at the beginning. And then it was like five hours in the crock pot and then you pull it. Mm -hmm. My daughter did it. 
making corn or flour tortillas is one of the simplest things you could possibly do. It's minimal ingredients, like two, it's really just flour. Right. We just have to now continue to try to convince people that it, the kitchen is a nice place and you can spend right. some great quality time in there. Yeah. And we can do it one person at a time. I mean, that's how I do it with my classes. You know, if I'm reaching one or two people or one kid when they're just starting out and they learn to cook at home and it's something that they love to do and they convince their parents to do it, we can only reach who we can reach. You know, my reach for me gets bigger and bigger and I keep preaching the same kind of thing to everybody that don't be intimidated. It's fun. Learn to chop, learn to use a knife because I know from teaching so much that people avoid recipes with a lot of chopping because they don't know how and then the knife scares them. But it shouldn't. If you just sit and cut two things every night, next thing you know, half a year from now, you're going to be flying through onions and peppers. But we can do it. You know, you don't need a chef to hold your hands. It helps. But what really matters is getting into the kitchen, putting those electronics down. You can do it. It's not hard. Breads were a big thing during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. It's the same amount of work if you're making tacos for tortillas and doing pulled chicken. Pulled chicken with thighs, super easy, right? These are all things that the oven's doing all the work. You're just spreading some stuff on top of it. And next thing you know, you have dinner for two nights. I really want people to understand that ordering out is is not good. Once in a while, absolutely. For convenience, I totally get it. But you should be cooking at home. It's something that really should be considering. I totally agree. I think we might be related in that. I wanted to ask you about, are you formally trained or are you pretty much self-taught and experienced throughout that kind of thing? No, I'm self-taught. Throughout your life now, moving from someone who's been in a kitchen for a long time, who's teaching and very involved with food, how is it that you transitioned into crossing that and blending that into the media world with the radio and the television? It was just one of those things that happened when I started, because I started in the film industry back in the day when I was in my 20s into my early 30s and I was making film. And that's what I'd love to do. And then my wife got pregnant with my son and we didn't want to raise my son in Los Angeles because, mm -hmm. I mean, I love the film industry, but it's not something you want your kids to grow up. We moved back here and I really wanted to, I'd been cooking my whole life and I really wanted to transition into that. And my wife had wanted to transition into real estate. So we both changed jobs and I got hired by a school and I was teaching. And then a woman came in, took one of my classes. She happened to own a private chef business. She asked me to come and audition for her. And I did. She hired me right away. And then a year later, I bought the business from her and transitioned it to A-listers. And then I started cooking for Red Sox players and like, you know, Celtics players. And I started to get known a bit for what I did because doing everything from scratch kind of set me apart. And then my wife said, you know, you should do a show. She's like, you have this background. You're great in front of the camera. She said, I think you'd make something really interesting. And she said, you make everything from scratch. That's that's really appealing. So I thought about it and I said, you know, geez, how am I going to do a show wrapped around when I do things from scratch? I'll be able to show one thing per show. It won't be very interesting. And then I just sat down and I broke it down and I wrote out a pilot. I had all my friends who were filmmakers and professional. They make commercials. They came down and did me a favor and shot my pilot for me, cut it and put it together. We thought we had something really unique. And something that was, you know, the production value was high end and having the background on that, I knew that I did have something. And it, this is the weird part of the story. My wife asked me to do a class for her, for her high end clients, it's like teach a pasta class. And mm -hmm. I said, sure, we help each other with 
you know, with our businesses whenever we can. So we finished the class. It was a blast. We were all just chatting. And the group had asked me, they said, do you, you know, would you ever want to open a restaurant? I said, oh, you know, no, no. <laughs> like that's that's not what I do. You know, I don't want to actually work. And um, we were laughing about it. And I said, you know, and they said, well, we're angel investors. We're looking for another investment. And I said, oh, funny enough, I just finished the pilot to a TV show. And they were like, wow, can we see it? I sent it. Cut to about six months later, they gave me all the money for an entire season. Oh, that's fantastic. I've watched your show and I really like it. It's well produced and you're good on camera and the information is very solid. That was great. It sounds like it was just a very natural transition for you. Like sitting down and writing a whole season was something that I, I was ready. I knew how to do it. And mm -hmm. I could make something that really was different and that really did stand out. And that was really me. It was my family and how I am in life. And because it wasn't about shtick, that was one of the things I really wanted to show the real stuff and who I like. I don't I can never put on a persona. This is it. This is who you get. Next thing you know, we got picked up. I called a couple friends in L.A. We got picked up by a distributor and then Pluto took us on and Pluto took us on and we premiered the month the pandemic. hit. Oh, wow. Which was perfect timing. Yeah. I thought we were going to just be I thought we'd be popular, but I thought we'd just just be very even because we're so niche, you know, because I'm making knives from scratch and making charcoal from scratch and pulling water from the Atlantic, making salt, you know, breaking down whole animals. And I thought we'd just be niche and find a little crowd that really loved us. But with the pandemic and everyone being home, we found a huge audience and we ended up like beating Gordon Ramsay on Pluto and that led to all these other now I'm in development with competition shows I'm actually gone back to the to like real film and I'm writing like a comedy TV show at the same time because now all my contacts are TV people and the media just kind of I get a radio show and people just started tuning in and it just kind of has like I'm very malleable in life and it just keeps happening and I, and if I want to do it I'll I'll keep pursuing it because I enjoy I enjoyed that that part of myself I enjoyed that part of art you know I work it's like anything you work really hard some things work out some things don't I'm a big believer that there's no real there's no such thing as failure because failure is just how you look at it it's a perspective right and I've done projects that haven't gone anywhere but they've taught me a ton. And if I hadn't done those projects, I would have never been to where I am now to understand the project that's actually going somewhere. So you have to really just take what life gives you and then you make of it what you do. You know, I keep running into these projects that I'm interested in. You know, some of them go, some of them don't. I love, I love food and I love TV. So I've been blessed to be able to do both. What do you think about the uh, world of, of cooking and television when they blended some 25 years ago or 30 years ago on the Food Channel? And then prior to that, when we were kids and we used to watch Julia and all that, it was about cooking. And now food television or food programming for the most part is now competitive kind of uh, situations as really gone away from cooking and more into competing. So does that affect you in any way? Yeah, sure. I mean, I see it all the time. I talk to the executives that produce it and they're doing what sells, what people are looking to watch. If people weren't watching it, they wouldn't do it. I can tell you that for sure. But that's not what I do. I'm not a big competition show guy. It's just not what I enjoy. It's not what I enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. But like we're doing, we're doing, we're trying to get it back to fun TV is what we're trying to do. And we're trying to create a show now bringing Julia back and things like that. We have to accept that that's the world that it is. I miss the days 
of Emerald, you know, and Bam and a live audience. But I know why they don't do those shows anymore. Um, There's a huge segment of the population, huge in numbers, maybe not in percentages. You know, you could create such the niche to be able to do the old world, old style with your new personality and be able to make it that successful. We're we're trying. That's one of the things we're trying to bring back, trying to come up with a format that will work in the modern world that has that kind of old world feel. I like doing that's what I think from scratch was, you know, we tried to do a combination of what I grew up watching with Julia and Jacques and all the galloping gourmet, you name it, right? Like everybody and do these kind of modern techniques where we're taking it where we can grab a younger audience too, because it's about mandates with TV. That's, you know, I'm in the middle of TV and I know from talking to executives at all the network, they're going off mandates and the mandates are what the numbers say. And the numbers is how they create TV, which is for them a bankable way to do things. But it also, it's so number driven that it's hard for new shows to get a chance if they're not within that skew. But we're trying to break out of that because, you know, from scratch wasn't something that the networks would do but doing it independently and having it be successful kind of shows people like there is there is that population out there that wants to see this kind of show so it's a matter of just kicking down the right door there are developers like me let's say who who go by gut who go by intuition a lot of the time and not necessarily analytics and you'll <laughs> see that also in in the sports world like with baseball let's say for instance a lot of teams focus on analytics they focus on the numbers and they stay away from their gut feelings and so on so Sometimes it hurts them. And I think yep. that that is the best way to go, I mean, you know, especially in the food world when you're talking about warm and fuzzy things like this. Yeah, I, I completely I'm a big believer in what you're talking about called the eye test. And I and there's a lot of that out there. So, I mean, there's people fighting for it and we'll get there because, you know, I've got a couple shows on the docket that we're having some fun with and we're creating some like competition shows that are going to be fun that aren't just like rip your throat out. We want to get back to the family shows and just things that where people are just competing to make food to make and have fun. You know, not so much that everything just has so much pressure on it because I mean, and that's what all the shows, the competition shows seem to be right it's kind of it's got a little bit of a mean spirit to it and that's just not how i we want to get it back to where it's a lot of fun and we're making things that that i would want to watch because i do miss those emerald shows i miss i miss that time with the live bands and you know Mm -hmm. people been cooking and just they would take the time like you were saying long form and really explore a dish that was the groundwork for a lot of what i do you know not just as tv personality but as a chef, look, I was seeing things that I never saw. That's one of the things that food TV was so amazing that people forget. It opened up a world to people that would never see it. That's right. When you can combine education and entertainment and create that wonderful place where it's like going to be helping people learn and enjoy, that's really the nexus of what we want to do, right? Yeah. You're preaching to the choir with that one. That's yeah. couldn't believe more in that. Because that is what it is. And that's what origin of food TV, if you're talking about the real origin with like Julia and Jacques, you're talking three cameras, like just sometimes one camera just sitting there and it's beef bourguignon. That's it. And that that camera is on you (laughs) the whole time. And you learned how to make that dish. 
Right. And when I started watching food TV, the early 2000s, when I really started, it started just really popularizing pop culture and becoming part of the lexicon. You know, that's when I started seeing dishes I didn't even know were out there. And that's why I had such a draw to food TV, because I was seeing things that, yeah, you can see in a cookbook or a, a magazine. But when you see it on TV and you see someone doing it and then you see someone eat it, you're like, I need to make that. I have to have that. And that. That was the, you know, the beginning of the the revolution. And I want to get back to that where it's not just because how many people can make what they're making with, you know, jelly beans, chicken thighs and, you know, shrimp on a cooking show. You know, it's I understand the fun of it. I get it. I totally understand it from an entertainment value and a marketing value. But I wouldn't mind seeing a dish that I haven't seen and having someone make it. Right, right, right. Like uh, Newberg. <laughs> or something along those lines, you know, from the old days. Right, right. Exactly. exactly. And that's big for, you know, from your neck of the woods, right? Yeah, huge. So how come I'm not hearing this big time Boston accent coming at you? I'm not hearing any clam box and things like that. You know, I moved to California when I was in 20. I was acting at that point. And one of the things that just happened in all my acting classes was you, you have to get rid of that accent. And so I lived over there for so long. I just kind of, it's just gone. My sisters still have it. I, you know, it, it definitely is around me constantly. My kids don't have it that bad, but you can still catch that lazy R. Right. You know, so I guess your sister who still has the accent is older than you. Yes. Yeah. Same yep. with me. I, I'm, I'm a New York boy. My sister is four years older than me. When we moved to California, when I was 10, people made fun of my New York accent, whereas people four years older than, than I loved her New York accent. So I got rid of mine. She kept hers. Interesting. Yeah. And yeah. Now it's like cool because of Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. It's cool to have a Boston accent, but I'm all set with it. Right, right, right. <laughs> oh, that's great. Hey, so tell people where we can find you and watch you and listen to you. Uh, anything you want to find me for, you can go to my Instagram at Chef Joe Gatto on Instagram. There's a link tree there and it can goes to my NPR show. You can get my national book from there. You can see my TV show from there. So if anyone wants to follow me, follow me on Instagram. I put up tons of fun content. There's always fun little movies going up and you can really access anything that I do from there and you get updates on anything I'm doing that's actually going to happen. If you were uh, to plan out your very, very last meal, what would be in that meal? Oh, tamales. Tamales, homemade. Oh yeah, tamales. Uh -huh. Uh, conchonite, stuffed with conchonita pibil. Ah. Mexican pulled pork. That's, that is definitely what I want for. That's top of the line for you. That's like, it doesn't get any better than that. That's the ultimate comfort food. That's the food that I have on my birthday. That's just the food that I absolutely love and want every time. Ah. What's, what's the perfect beverage for pizza? The perfect beverage for pizza. I mean, I know, I don't drink, but I know people would say beer. Root beer. Oh, root beer. Oh, well, how about cream soda? Cream soda is good with the deli sandwiches. Oh, okay. I like where you're going with that. That's very okay. New York. Yeah, you know how to kind of see what, what it was all about. What about, remember almond cookies and fortune cookies that were all the uh, Chinese restaurants when you were a kid? Absolutely. And they're American. They're an American-made product. Exactly. So what's the perfect beverage with one of those almond cookies? I don't know. I, I like where you're going with this. Tell me. Ice water. Ooh, I, I, like I don't know. It's just something interesting about that. <laughs> That's my favorite thing with ice cream is ice water. 
Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. So do you have any dietary restrictions in your life, in your world, in your family? Uh, we don't have any dietary restrictions, but we do like always try to be conscious of eating healthy. Right, right. Especially because I'm around food all the time. So, yeah. you know, weight and things like that, you know, working out and keeping healthy. One of the traps of being chef is you do constantly, you're able to make really great food. It's always around and having the discipline not to eat it all the time is is one of the things that we work on, but always, you know, the vegetables, always fruits, always lean proteins. And then when you make something like pizza, it's a treat. Right, right. Everything in moderation, even excess. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite season of the year? My favorite season? Um, that would be a toss up between summer and fall. Mm -hmm. Two, like when it's not a thousand degrees and fall when it's not rainy, when it's just that perfect crisp weather and you can take the dog for a walk. Sounds great. Joe, it's really been a pleasure having you. I love talking food and especially meeting new friends. You know, once again, tell people where they can find you, please. Yeah, this was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. And you can find me at Chef Joe Gatto on Instagram. So at Chef Joe Gatto, you'll see everything I do from there. So you just mentioned tie-dye a minute ago. That means you're an aging hippie like me. Oh yeah, for okay. sure. Well, you did live in Berkeley also, so you gave it away earlier. Yeah, the minute you say Berkeley, you know I'm, I'm a little bit crunchy. Right. <laughs> I'm a little bit chewy, so... Yeah. So, right. That's perfect for Berkeley. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Thanks, man. It's been a wonderful time. Thank you for joining 50 Tastes of Grey. I'm going to say aloha to you and yours, and we'll be watching. And Thank you so much for having me. It was so great being here. Thanks, man. Aloha. Aloha. Bye-bye.